Many of the books of the Bible stand on their own. You can read the book and you can get just about everything out of it there is to get. But there are a few books that you need some background information, some historical perspective to really understand what's going on. For example, I read 1 John for years and read this passage in the first, first chapter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. And for years, I really didn't know what that was talking about. Why in the world did he say he touched? He's talking about Jesus. He says, why did he say he touched Jesus? What does that got to do with anything? And then I found out that First John was written to combat a particularly vicious heresy of the day that was denying that Jesus was both God and man. And many people believed and were teaching that Jesus was not actually in the flesh, that he was a ghost or he was a phantom or a spirit. And so what John was doing, and the whole book is this way, the whole book was written to combat this idea that Jesus Christ was not real. And so John says, well, I know better because I've touched him. And that's what he's talking about. And so many of the books of the Bible have to be taken in their context to understand them. Well, that's the way Matthew is, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. I don't have time to cover Matthew tonight, obviously. So we're going to talk about the background to it, so you can study it on your own. I think there are some important things to understand about this book to gain everything it's trying to teach. First thing I want to ask is a couple of questions. Why are there four Gospels? Why do we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and not just one big gospel. Why, why not just one book that talks about the life of Christ? That would be easier. It, you could do it more in, in uh, order. Why do you think there are four books instead of one? Anybody want to take a guess? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, well, for one thing, different audiences. Some of them were written for Jews. Some of them were written for Gentiles. Yeah, you've got four different portraits of Christ. Each of the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, looks at a different element of Christ's nature. And that we, we need four different portraits. Mark talks about his servanthood. Luke talks about his humanity. And John, of course... Starts right off, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so the whole book is about His deity. So where does Matthew fit into this? That's what we want to look at tonight. And secondly, what is the predominant message of Jesus Christ? Before I studied this, I would have gotten this wrong. What subject did Jesus talk about more than any other subject? You're stealing all my thunder over there. You, you shut up. <laughs> I love telling preachers that. <laughs> you know, you might think, well, it's salvation. Well, he talked about salvation. It's love. Well, he talked about love. But more than all those things put together was the kingdom. The kingdom was the predominant message that Jesus Christ talked about. And when I first heard that, I thought, that can't be right. But then I did a little research and found out, sure enough, it is. Here's just a few passages, and we could read these for an hour. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first thing we have that he talked about was the kingdom. And he went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Notice it didn't say he preached the gospel of salvation. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. And boy, when you start to look for these things, you realize every time he talked, he talked about the kingdom. That was the heart and soul of his message. Everything is tied into the kingdom. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Everything is about kingdom. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. On and on and on. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And boy, the more. And next time you're reading in the Gospels, just notice how often the concept of kingdom comes up. It, it just pervades everything. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. Now you would expect him to say, preach the message of salvation. Or, but he didn't say, preach the message, the kingdom is near. <clears throat> I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. In his discussion with this important Pharisee, that's what he talked about. The kingdom. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He didn't say I must preach the good news of the gospel, or the good news of the uh, salvation, rather. But I must preach the kingdom of God. Because that's why I was sent. He said the reason I was sent was to talk about the kingdom. What do most of the parables start off with? The vast majority. (laughs) The kingdom of heaven is like. Yeah. Everything Jesus talked about was the kingdom. If you look at all of his many discourses, he's always hammering down on the kingdom. The kingdom this, the kingdom that. It's all about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like. And then he said it's like a wedding or it's like a field or it's like a a pearl or whatever. So the kingdom was the predominant thinking of Jesus. Now keep this in mind because this is going to have a great deal to do with Matthew. The importance of the kingdom is so great, he even says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have your eyes, two eyes, and be thrown into hell. He says nothing is more important than the kingdom. If you have to lose an eye or a hand to get into the kingdom, it's worth it. Whatever it takes to get into the kingdom. Now, why? Why this passionate and dedicated focus on the kingdom. This really got under my skin. I had to find this out. Because when I began to realize how crucial the kingdom was to Christ, and even how predominant a theme it is throughout the Old Testament, you could make a case that the Old Testament and the New Testament, the predominant theme in both is the kingdom. It's all about the kingdom. And so I began to think and study and pray and say, why is this such a crucial, central concept throughout the Bible? Because that's not the way I had been raised. That's not what I had been taught. We didn't focus on the kingdom when I was in church as a kid. Most of the sermons I heard didn't talk about the kingdom. This was something I kind of ran into when I was an adult. And I began to think, why is this so crucial? 
To understand this, we must understand God's master plan. Now, I know you're going to ask in a few minutes, what's this got to do with Matthew? (laughs) You haven't talked about Matthew. We're going to get there. Just be patient. But I believe to understand Matthew, we've got to lay this framework before we get there because this makes Matthew come alive. To understand this, we've got to go back in history to God's master plan. Back in the beginning, in Genesis 1, God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth. What was God's commission to man? To rule. To rule. This is a kingdom word. Some versions have the word dominion. What does dominion mean? Yeah, to rule. It's a kingdom concept. And the more I read, the more I studied, I realized something. God's master plan was amazing. Now, notice it says, God said, let us make man in our image. Who else did God make in His image? Well, humankind, but nobody. What about the angels? Were they made in the image of God? No. The angels were not made in the image of God. We were special. And what God's plan was... Now, when Jesus prayed... When Jesus said, here's how you should pray, He says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. How? On earth as it is in heaven. So what was God's original design for humanity? God's original design for humanity was that we would rule the earth, how? According to His will, but as He ruled in heaven. That's what Jesus prayed. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So how were we to rule the earth? As God ruled in heaven. And so God says, I'm going to give man authority over the fish, the sea, the birds, the air. I don't know exactly what that means. I presume it means if, if Adam ordered a tiger to come to him, he had to come. But whatever it means, man was given rulership. We were meant to be royalty, if you think about it. I've always thought I should have been a prince. <laughs> but God meant for us to be royalty. Matter of fact, the Bible teaches why were angels created. To serve man. Angels were originally designed to be servants of us and heaven. But what happens? We blew it. (laughs) When sin entered the picture, we lost our position. So what was God's plan to undo this? The kingdom. God's plan is to bring in the kingdom. And what was Jesus' role in this? 
to be the king. Yeah. Jesus was to come to bring the kingdom, to restore the kingdom, and ultimately what's going to happen? Okay, Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, is God's will done on earth always? No. Is it God's will that people die of cancer? And we have robberies and rapes and murders and wars? No, that's not God's will. And so God's ultimate design is to restore man to the position that we had in the garden, ruling as God rules in heaven. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. <laughs> you know, we've been taught we're going to heaven. The Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth. We don't know what that means. But in some way, we are to be restored to the kingdom we once had. We are to be... Matter of fact, we're told that we will be co-heirs and reign with Christ. What's the word reign mean? Again, it's a kingdom word, rulership. So in some way, we're going to be given back what Adam and Eve threw away. Jesus said, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Now, what happened when the angels sinned? They were thrown out. What happens when man sins? We're given another, we're given another chance. You see, we're, we were made as God's children. What happens when your children do something stupid? You say, well, that's it, out the door. <laughs> no. You give them another chance. Why? You love them. They're yours. They're part of you. We're part of God. Somehow we're made in His image. I don't think we'll ever understand what all that means, this side of heaven. But somehow we are special to God. And so this whole kingdom thing is part of God's master plan to bring us back. Ultimately, when the end comes, Jesus will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. Who's the kingdom? We are, the church. So this is all part of God's master plan. And Jesus had to come. He had to pay for this with His blood. He had to die and so forth. All this is part of the master plan to restore us to what God had originally in mind. Now, we start in Matthew with what I call the 16 most boring verses in the Bible. So-and-so so -and -so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat. So -and -so. Have you ever wondered, why is that there? <laughs> you know, how far back can you trace your lineage? Well, I can, you know, I know who my great-grandfather was. He was Sandy Chisholm. Uh, you're not always proud of your ancestors. You know, I found out my grandfather uh, owned a saloon and got shot in the back because he was in a feud with somebody. We even have the gun he was carrying when he got shot. But, <laughs> but to us, do we really care who your forefathers were? Not really. It's interesting to talk about. You know, my brother got all into researching our history and we came from Scotland. Matter of fact, the Chisholm family owned uh, Loch Ness for a long time. But the, the Chisholm Castle is still there and the Chisholm, the head of the clan, is still there. And my brother wears the kilt. His kids love that. <laughs> I'm not wearing a skirt. I don't care what they say. But to us, lineage isn't that important. You don't care who my father was. You don't care if he was a, an outlaw or president of a or doctor or whatever. It doesn't really matter. So why 
does the Bible spend so much space talking about the lineage? Now, what is the theme of Matthew? Remember, it fits into this big category of the kingdom. What is it about Matthew that is so special? What is the central thought of this book? What is it written to prove? Now, what's the most important thing in a kingdom? The king. The king. The king is the big wheel in the kingdom. Why do you need the king? To to rule the kingdom. The book of Matthew was written entirely. Almost every single paragraph in it relates back to this truth, proving that Jesus Christ is the King. Now remember, John proves what? That He's God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among men. That's crucial. But Matthew focuses entirely on the idea that Jesus Christ is the King. Now, as somebody said earlier, you have different audiences for these books. Matthew was the most Jewish audience of all the four books. It was written to the Jews. Now, the Gentiles, it wasn't that big a deal to them. But how important is lineage to Jews? Everything. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, it talks about some of the priests were not allowed to fulfill their priestly duties when they came back from captivity. Why? They couldn't produce their lineage. They couldn't prove they were descended from uh, Levi or Aaron. And so they couldn't serve. The lineage was absolutely 100% necessary to prove your credentials, that you had the right to be who you're supposed to be. Now, Jesus is supposed to be the King, the Messiah. The one who's promised. All these prophecies talk about the king is coming. The Messiah is going to be here. And so how does Matthew start off? Sir? Yeah. It's got to trace him back to King David because what was the prophecy? The Messiah would sit on the throne of David. And so Jesus, this lineage is there to prove that he has a legal right. He has the authority, the credentials to sit on the throne of David and be the king. And everything in this book aims toward that central concept. Jesus Christ has the right, the authority, the privilege to be the king. The next thing we notice different about Matthew and the other books. Now there are two birth accounts of Jesus, Matthew's and Luke's. Now Luke... Remember, its theme is the humanity. Now, why is it important that we understand he's human? (laughs) So he understands us. He's been there, yeah. So, yeah, that's crucial. Jesus has to be human. So there are two birth accounts given, Matthew's and Luke's. The Magi do not occur in Luke's account. Why not? Because they have something to do with this whole issue. Now, I was shocked when I began to study and found out that the Magi have nothing to do with who we've always thought the Magi were. (laughs) Traditionally, who are the Magi? Wise men from the east. How did they come? On camels. How many of them were there? 
we always see three on, on the postcards. And what were they? Well, that, <laughs> but they were kings. We three kings of Orient are. I promise I won't sing, but I, after my research, I found out all that's wrong. They were not kings. They didn't ride camels. <laughs> they did come from the east. Now, what makes their story special to this book is interesting. God had revealed in the east where they came. Now, these were Persians. There was a tribe of Persians that were known as the Magi. And over the years, these had become known as some of the most educated, wise men in the world. And by the time of Christ, the Magi were at almost every court in the world. You were nobody if you didn't have a few Magi hired on to advise the king. They were not kings. They were king advisors and more importantly, king makers and king trainers. If you had a son and you were the king... You hired Magi to train him to be the next king. And whenever a king was made, whenever a new king was crowned, if the Magi came in and were part of the ceremony, what did that tell everybody? Yeah, this is official. This is, these are the king makers. Now get the picture. Who was the most paranoid man in the world at the time of Christ? Herod. <laughs> Herod was an amazing character. He had gotten his job by being a traitor, basically. The Romans had an internal civil war, and he was on the wrong side. But as soon as he saw which side was going to win, guess what he did? What any good politician would do, he switched sides. And so he got himself appointed as king of the Jews. But he was so paranoid, he believed that everybody was after his job. He murdered his own son because he thought he was after his job. Maybe two of them. He killed his father-in-law, one of his wives. I mean, he slaughtered most of his own family because he thought, he thought they might be after his job even though there was no evidence of it. There was a saying in Rome that it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son. I mean, he, he was just paranoid about somebody taking his job. Now, get the picture. He's sitting in Jerusalem, in his court, in his castle. And all of a sudden, the Magi show up. Now, the Magi did not travel in threes on camels. The Magi traveled in a long column of Persian cavalry. Who did the Romans fear the most in the world at this time? Persians. The one group they had had more trouble with was the Persian cavalry than anybody else. But the Magi were allowed to move around the Roman Empire. So the Magi show up in his city. They would travel with usually a cavalcade of hundreds of soldiers. They usually traveled in large groups, so there were undoubtedly more than three of them. But they show up at Herod's palace, and what do they ask? <laughs> Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one born king? What was Herod's reaction? What? (laughs) 
What king? I'm the king. He was royally upset. Matter of fact, the text goes on to say, all of Jerusalem was upset. (laughs) Why were they upset? Because Herod was upset. (laughs) It's actually said that when Herod was getting close to his death, he knew that most Jews wouldn't care about because he was not a Jew. He was an Idumean. But Herod actually ordered that prominent Jews all over the city be taken captive. And upon his death, they were to be executed so there would be mourning in the city. <laughs> you talk about, <laughs> talk about a guy that had problems. I don't think that ever happened, but uh, that, that, I think that was what he had in mind. So Herod, the most paranoid man in the world, who was trying to hang on to his, king, his kingship with all of his grip, and the magi who are recognized as king makers, experts in this stuff, show up at his door and they say, we're here to find the new king. So Herod went ballistic. He lost it. <laughs> and so he ordered the deaths of all the boy babies. I mean, he first called in the experts and says, where is this king to be born? And they said, well, down in Bethlehem. And he ordered the deaths of all these boy babies to just... Even two years, you know, he cleared, he cleared the whole area. He's going to make sure he got it one way or the other. So again, it's all about the king. Now, God had revealed in the east much earlier that there was someone coming who was going to be special, a king. And that's why the Magi had shown up when they did. And so everything revolves back to this central theme. Jesus Christ is the king. Not only did the, his lineage prove it, the Magi proved it. I mean, everything about this book focuses in on that idea. He's going to be the king. He is the king. He has the right to be the king. What's the first thing you got to have if you got a kingdom? You got to have a king. <laughs> and so this is God's master plan working its way through history. And we remember all the Old Testament passages. Uh, Daniel, you remember the king Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. What was the dream about? The coming world kingdoms. And you remember he said, this got this statue standing out here in the plain and the head of gold and the, the arms in, of silver and the chest and so forth. And we, we know from history that there were world empires that came along, kingdoms. The Babylonians were knocked off by who? Persians. Persians were knocked off by who? The Greeks. The Greeks were knocked off by who? The Romans. And then it was during the days of the Romans that one final kingdom would be set up. And this was the rock that rolled down the mountain and knocked over and it grew to fill the earth. All these prophecies are aiming toward this time when Jesus Christ was going to show up and He was going to be the king. Now, why did the Jews miss it? You know, I've, there's one thing that's puzzled me. And one of the questions I want to ask when I get to heaven. The experts in Jerusalem, the doctors of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those men who had memorized the Torah. I mean, these people knew the scriptures backward and forward. And even when Herod said, where is the king to be born? Jerusalem. Does anything strike you as really weird about that story? 
What is the oddest thing about that particular story? The experts all knew where the king was going to show up, but what did they do when they heard from experts, from the Magi, that the king was here? What didn't happen? Nobody went to see. Now, how long had the Jews been waiting for the king? Yeah, hundreds of years, over a thousand years. They had prophecies running out their ears. The king was coming, the Messiah was coming, the great one is coming. And now they have evidence that he might have shown up. Now, if you... Yes, sir. I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, no question. But, I mean, the apostles at least had met Jesus. And let's face it, he didn't act like a king. But if you were looking for the king, waiting for the king, everything in your life was about the king and the Messiah, and then you hear he's in Bethlehem. How far is Bethlehem from Jerusalem? How many? Yeah, just a few miles. I mean, it's not like it would, you'd have to travel for a month to get there. You could get there in an afternoon. Not, we have no evidence that not one single priest, not one single doctor of the law, not one single expert in the law even bothered to go check him out. That, to me, is astounding. They'd been waiting all this time for the Messiah to show up, and then the Magi show up and say, He's here, and they don't even bother to go check it out. That's, that's just always amazed me. At any rate, why did the Jews reject the king? Well, yeah, the high priest didn't want a king. Herod definitely didn't want another king, but the high priest didn't want another king because he was afraid it would threaten his power. But what about the average Jew in the street? Why did so many Jews reject the king? Yes. Yes, yes, exactly. Now, they had been under the domination of either the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, or the Romans for almost, well, 600 years roughly. Jerusalem was destroyed in 586. So we're talking about roughly 600 years. They had been under somebody's domination except for very brief periods of time. So when they heard the word Messiah, what kind of king were they expecting? They're expecting a military leader. They were expecting somebody like Saul, head and shoulders taller than everybody else, shoulders this wide, walk out on the temple mount, pull out a big sword and say, all right, I'm declaring jihad against the Romans and we're going to conquer the world. That's what they were expecting. Instead of a warlord, what did they get? A carpenter from Nazareth? <laughs> a carpenter from Nazareth? <laughs> This is a king? <laughs> and what kind of ridiculous things did he say? Love your neighbor? What kind of king is that? <laughs> so they rejected him because he didn't fit their image of what the king was going to be. Is that a problem today? You bet it is. Why do so many Americans reject Jesus? He's not what they're expecting. He's not what they're looking for. What kind of king do they want? You know, there's a lot of that kind of preaching going on. If you listen to the TV preachers, they talk a lot about the health and wealth. You know, if you're a real faithful Christian, you're going to be healthy and wealthy. 
And a lot of people, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. That's what kind of king I want. And so most Americans reject Jesus because he's not what they're looking for. They want a king that will give them suggestions, and if they want to follow him, they can. But what does Jesus tell us? Yeah, yeah. If you love me, what are you going to do? You're going to obey what I tell you. And then he says, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to do what? Take up your cross. Ooh. <laughs> I don't want to carry a cross. <laughs> That's painful. They knew what it meant to carry a cross in those days. And they didn't want to hear that. And Americans don't want to hear that today. I don't want to give my life fully to the Lord. I don't want to sacrifice time and money and effort to Him. I want him just kind of sit up there and tell me I'm saved and I'm all right, but don't bother me. And so we have much the same problem that the Jews did with this issue. In the Sermon on the Mount, now, Jesus... What is the Sermon on the Mount? From the perspective of, remember, this whole book is about the kingship of Jesus. So what would the Sermon on the Mount be? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. What do kingdom citizens do? How do we act? How do we behave? How do we think? How are we supposed to be? That's the idea of the Sermon on the Mount. Why did Jesus meet with Satan? What was the point of him going through that? So he would be tempted as we were? Sir? To fulfill prophecy? Also, inadvertently, what did Satan do? He didn't mean to, but what did Satan do for this whole issue of kingship? Sir? Yeah, yeah, for one thing. But by Satan saying the things he did, what was he recognizing? Sir? He was recognizing that Jesus was the king. Yeah. So we have actually the testimony of Satan himself that Jesus is the king. It's astounding how God uses all these things to work together. Now, the temptations themselves are interesting. Jesus, uh, Satan offers Jesus, he says, now notice what he said, if you are the Son of God, sir, he says, sir, or since you are, did Satan know who he was? Yeah, he knew who he was. Did Jesus know who he was? Yeah, he did. They both knew who he was. So it wasn't a matter of you got to prove something. Now, have you ever wondered why was this a temptation? I mean, obviously he was hungry. He had gone 40 days without eating. But Jesus knew this was Satan. What's the temptation? 
here. I mean, Jesus had already gone 40 days. He could go another day or two. What's the temptation? What is Satan actually trying to get him to do? I mean, Jesus didn't have to prove it. Why? Did he care what Satan thought? No, he didn't care what Satan thought. Jesus knew who he was. He didn't have to prove it to himself. So what's the temptation here? Yeah. What is our temptation? Yeah. When Jesus prayed, whenever Jesus prayed, how did he almost always end his prayers? Not my will, but thine be done. What did Jesus come to show us? To do God's will, not His. Now, what is the sinful nature? Paul talked about the sinful nature. What is the sinful nature? My will. That's exactly right. The sinful nature is my will, not God's. And so what is Satan offering Jesus? What's he trying to get him to do? Do His will, not God's. God had decided that that was not the way Jesus was to feed Himself. We have the temp... Why do we cheat on a test? I know none of us in here have ever done that. But why would someone cheat on a test? <laughs> it's always about the shortcut, isn't it? The easy way out. Why do people steal? The shortcut. They don't want to work. What's Satan offering Jesus or telling him? Why should you go through all this? Just make your own bread. That doesn't work. So he takes Jesus up on the Temple Mount, the pinnacle. Now, depending on where that actually was, it could be anywhere from two to 400 feet straight down. And he says, Scripture says, if you'll jump off, the angels won't let you dash your foot. What was the temptation here? I mean, again, Jesus doesn't have anything to prove to Satan. What's the temptation? Was that a temptation? Was Jesus tempted to do these things? Why? How do you know that? It wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been meaningful if he wasn't, yeah. So what is Jesus being offered here? What would be the temptation to take this suggestion to jump off the Temple Mount. Ma'am? Well, he already had that. He could call them anytime he wanted. Yes. Why would that matter? Sir? Okay. <clears throat> well, again, it wasn't God's plan to do it this way. But... If you, if you were wanting to, if you thought you were the Messiah, what would be the first thing you'd want to happen? What would, what would you want to happen if you're going to be, the, if you think you're the Messiah, what have you got to do? You want everybody to know it. What, so today, what would you do? If you climb up on the Empire State Building and you're going to jump off, what would you do before you went up there? 
Yeah, you'd call all the TV stations and the papers, and you'd say, all right, I'm fixing to jump off the Empire State Building and prove I'm God. <clears throat> if Jesus had gone up on the Temple Mount, how many people were there? Thousands. And so if Jesus had jumped off, now, did the people know the prophecy? Yeah. If Jesus had done that, matter of fact, one guy had tried this. <laughs> One guy earlier had tried this. He had jumped off. And guess what happened? Ooh, they had to scrape him off the pavement. But if Jesus did it and he was successful, what, what then? Instant, instant proof. Instant messiahship. But again, this wasn't according to God's master plan. Well, that's true. But the prophecy said if he were to jump off, the angels would keep him from dashing his foot. So that's what they were going on. If he fulfilled that prophecy, then that would have proven to all those thousands of Jews that this was actually the Messiah. So then Satan pulls the real temptation. I think the first two were just to set him up. And Satan says he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And my time is up. I'm sorry. <laughs> Have to quit that quick? What was Satan actually offering him? A way off the cross. Yeah. Did Jesus already own the world?